Hey, y'all, thanks for tuning in to the We Are One podcast. This space, it's a collection of talks ranging anywhere from sermons from our ministry, creative thoughts, breakout sessions at things like We Are One Conference, as well as some inside scoops on leadership. We hope it helps you. If you want to keep up to date with everything We Are One, you can go to weareoneyouth.com or follow us on social at WAO Youth. We hope you're blessed. Hey, we're going to get into tonight. Acts 23. But before we do, I got to make sure that if you're visiting for the first time or if you're there and you did not watch the extension, I told y'all on social, you needed to watch it. This extension, what was the title again? I'm trying to remember. It was called Another Citizenship. There it is. It highlighted Acts 23 and you got to know a couple of things before I'm going to preach tonight. So I want to make sure you're ready because when I, once I come out, we're going right into it. Acts 22 Paul is there in Jerusalem. The Jews are freaking out. Finally, this this dude by the name of Claudius Lysias, the commander, he grabs them. Paul's tr- they're bringing him into the Antonia fortress. Paul's like, let me talk to the people. Paul tells him his whole story. This is what Jesus did in my life, all these things. But then at the point that he goes, hey, listen, Jesus told me to go to the Jews and preach because y'all won't listen. They freaked out. So then it says at the end of Acts 22, that they bring him in to the fortress. They stretch him out and they're getting ready to beat the tar out of him. And that's what they would do to get answers. But instead of them being able to question him, Paul asked them a question. He's like, hey, are you going to beat up a Roman citizen right now before you've even proven that I'm guilty? And they freak out. And it actually says in verse 29 of Acts 22, those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately And the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. This message is going to be the beginning of the end. It's going to be a back-to-back, two-part, this week, next week, issue four, issue five, taking you into all that is Acts 23 all the way to 26. Why don't you buckle up for it? Get ready. It's an amazing end to an amazing year of Keep Us Dangerous. Here we go. Issue four. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all of the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. It says in Acts 23, verse 1, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. And at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. We're just going to keep this in the Bible right now. We ain't going to do this for real in this moment. Okay, we're going to get real tonight. Yikes, bro, chill out. Don't worry, in case this goes online, we planned it. Don't worry. It's like local church slaps their pastor. <laughs> Dang straight we do. We keep it real here. When I'm out of line, you get me back in line. That wasn't Paul. Paul, Paul wasn't like, ouch, yikes, oh, my goodness, as my son would say. That wasn't Paul's reaction. You got to realize Paul's been stoned, he's been beat, 
He's been whipped. He, he can no longer walk the same anymore because his spine's been broken so many times. He's been chained and in prison. You think a slap on the face, you think it even shook him for a moment? Like, the dude's got some tough skin. You know what Paul's response was? It wasn't, ouch. It wasn't, oh, no, what do I do? How does he respond? Probably he turned the other cheek, right? That's what Jesus told us to do. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. <laughs> Verse 3. Then Paul said to him, meaning the, the high priest Ananias, he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. That's, a, that's, a, that's the response. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Is he wrong? Like, if you understand here, the fact that he's commanding him to do this, he's violating the law because he's saying Paul violated the law. This whole, this whole situation from Acts 23 to Acts 24, it honestly makes no sense when you begin to break it down. Is he wrong? No, he's not wrong. The high priest is, he has a double standard here. He's completely out of line. But I'm going to tell you, those around him, they did not take it well that Paul responds this way. Paul's the one that just gets hit in the face, but because of what he says now, he says to the high priest, I'm going to strike, I'm going to make sure that God gets, sees you struck, bro. God is going to strike you. Just because Paul talked like that, it continues. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? <laughs> I love Paul's response. Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. I love how Paul says this. When I actually, when I first read it, because in the Bible, we don't catch this a lot of times. Jesus is sarcastic all the time. If you read it right, if you can really take in the tone, he's sarcastic with his disciples all the time. Paul's sarcastic in the Bible. How many of y'all, you like sarcasm and you like picking up on like subtle, like soft little jokes that just kind of land a little bit, a little dry, right? Like, I don't like my wings dry, but I love my jokes dry. I like my wings extra wet, okay? I, I like bring some sauce on the side. But I love here, when I read this, when I first read it, I love the ability to know Paul's character that I could actually wonder, was he being sarcastic? Because the high priest just tells somebody to hit him in the face. He then responds, God's going to strike you. You're going to act to me like God's going to strike you. Then they're like, how dare you? And when I read it almost, it's almost like, oh, sorry. I didn't know that was the high priest. He ain't acting like a high priest. How was I even supposed to know? Like, that's how I read it when I first read the Bible. I'm like, Paul's just straight sticking it to him right now. Like, you're going to act like a tool? I'm going to be a power tool if you're going to be a tool. Like, I'm going to give it back to you. I'm going to give it straight. But he wasn't actually. I wish. I, I honestly do. Like, there's that thing in our flesh that we just want. Like, we want just a good battle scene, right? And anything, it's like, it's like especially like some of you girls, like, you think it's just great, like, when the guy fights over, like, this guy and this guy, they both like me. Oh, they're fighting over me. It's like, we think that's a, that's a terrible thing. Why do we think things like this are good? They're not. Paul wasn't being sarcastic. Paul actually recognized, like Jesus had taught, I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. Dang it. I just lost my temper. You ever just know, like, something that simple? It's like, don't lose your temper. Like, you know that some things have the ability to set you off, such as a family member. 
and you already know that they're going to know exactly how if they want to to set you off, and you already know that, yet you let them get under your skin anyways, and you lose your cool? So Paul, already knowing what he was up against, I mean, the dude's taking the beating in a lifetime. A slap is nothing, but there was something about it here with the Sanhedrin where he really just didn't want to have to take it anymore. And I think for a lot of us, we have to understand this idea that just like Paul, we have an ability to make a decision. I wish before we had done it wrong, but many times we realize after we've done it wrong. The difference between people in this room is not whether or not you do it right, it's what you do after you've done it wrong. Do you have the ability like Paul to stop and go, should have bit my tongue. Shouldn't have said that. Let's even go even further. What if God's what if God's grace and mercy and love and compassion grew so great inside of us, we didn't even think it? It's one thing to never say it. It's another thing to not even think it. I mean, that's, that, talk about that's being like Jesus. Isn't, isn't this the goal that each day of our lives, we're trying to become more like Jesus? So Paul recognizes, I should have never said that. That was way out of line. Like, what, what am I doing right now? And then he wants to repent. How many of us, when we mess up, we don't, like Paul, choose repentance. We choose pretending instead of repenting. It wasn't that bad. I don't think I actually, I mean, I don't think I came across that bad, did I? Like, it, like I was in the room. I, I didn't think people were that bothered by it. And we pretend like we didn't do what we just did. And we spend all our energy to cover up rather than just to repent and move on. And this is what I found. When you're trying to go forward with Jesus, so many of us spend our lives going one step, uh, two steps backwards and one step forward because if we would learn to just take a small step back in order to move forward, it looks like this. I'm going forward. I messed up. I take a step back and I go, that was wrong. I need to repent of that. I need forgiveness. I need to apologize. I need to make that right. I need to go to somebody and, and look them in the eyes and say, will you forgive me? Rather than just doing that and taking a small step back, being able to reassess things so then we can continue to take large steps forward, many of us cover up, pretend like it never happened, and we find ourselves taking large steps back, many steps forward. And we waste so much of our God-given potential. We waste so much of the seconds, minutes that we have here on earth, which are very small in comparison to the grand scheme of eternity. And we waste so much energy and life when we could just be like, God will strike. That was wrong. But what we do is we send it, rather than saying that was wrong, we go, that wasn't that bad. It's not as bad as people are making it. People are blowing this way out of proportion rather than like Paul right there. What does he say? He just says, listen, I did not realize he was the high priest because I know in the law it says, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. But why did Paul lose his cool? I think this is important for us to understand as, why. as well. Why did he lose his cool? He lost his cool because he was provoked. He was so sick of the way the Sanhedrin was acting, their religiosity, their lying, their, their false testimony they're bringing forth. And it's just kind of like, you ever have that where it's just like, I'm going to lose it. If somebody does it anymore, oh my gosh, I, I'm going to freak out. And, and we all freak out in different ways. 
everybody deals with anxiety in some sense, I've come to find out. Some of us produce anxiety, which transforms into anger, and we let it out. Others keep it like a, 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 a it's like it's like we put the Mentos in the, in the, what is it, Pepsi or Coke, whatever, but we keep the lid on, and the whole thing's just like shaking inside of us. Dude, I take the lid off and just let it out. That's like, that's how I am. But I'm not saying that's good either. And so what happens is it starts building. Why? Because like I said earlier, it could be family member, whatever it is. Somebody provokes us. This is what I need you to know if you're going to be a believer in Jesus Christ. People will aim to provoke you in order to get you to act in a manner that does not look like Jesus. So then they can say one more thing about how, oh, this is how Christians are. They don't act like they're Jesus. And, this, and they can try to find a reason and a way to dismantle the body of Christ, dismantle the truth of God's word, dismantle who Jesus is simply by how you act. So that's why I think it's so essential when we screw up, we just repent of it and humble ourselves. Because if people want to crucify us for that, then so be it. They crucified Jesus for perfection. If they want to crucify us for imperfection in our repentance, then so be it. Because many times what's going to look like Jesus is even then after you've screwed up and repented and then they still crucify you for it, I don't know something that looks more like Jesus than a crucifixion. It's not about, well, I'm going to repent and I'm going to fix this so then people will love me and I won't have any problems again. It's I'm going to look more like Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus long enough, you have to learn that you're going to be provoked. It may, I hope not, be a slap on the face. It may not. But there is something about taking steps forward. Paul, he, as he's in this moment, Luke writes, and it continues in verse 6. It said, then Paul, knowing that some of them, <laughs> I'm going to listen to this, knowing that some of them. So this is where Paul's getting a little savage. This is where you need to, like, take note. Knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he called on the Sanhedrin. He said, my brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I mean, that's a big deal. It's like I got a, I got a legacy of this. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. I'm going to break this down a lot more in extensions, but just catch the beginning of this. Then Paul, knowing that some of them, you know what you're about to say is going to tick some people off. He knew that some of them were Pharisees, some were Sadducees, and I'll break this down more later in an extension, but he knew if he talked about the resurrection, that was going to rile them up. I'm going to tell you, there is nothing like a good resurrection to rile up a room. It's the dividing line. It is. It is what separates everything and everyone on planet Earth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And see, the Sadducees believed one way. The Pharisees believed another way about even the possibility of this. Much less now you're going to get introduced Jesus as the Messiah. That's about to tick things off. So it continues in verse 9. It says that there was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid. Paul would be torn to pieces by them. And so he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. 
I need you to catch this. Paul just came out of the barracks. He just got here. And now he's going back in. It, it was referred to as the Antonia Fortress. It was right there next to the Temple Mount. He's been there under guard. They just released him to allow him to come into the Sanhedrin, and now they're taking him back in. Why? Because every time that they bring him out, people want to kill him. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The Bible says that there was Jews in this chapter, chapter 23 of Acts, that they had come together in such a way that they were going to find whatever way possibility that they could gather to kill Paul. They wanted to get rid of him to a degree. I mean, this was so intense that they took an oath. They bound themselves together, 40 men under an oath, and they said, we will not eat. We will not drink. I mean, we ain't going to sleep. We ain't going to do anything. They took an oath specifically with eating and drinking until he's dead. And they plotted and they schemed and they came together and they said, Let's set up an ambush for him so that we can find him and we can kill him. We don't want the message going any further anymore. We don't want it here in Jerusalem. We don't want him on the face of the earth. Let's kill him. I mean, it, guys, it wasn't slaps on the wrist the brother was getting. I mean, it was jail time. It, it, was, it was floggings and beatings and stonings, and it was facing death. His whole life, everywhere he went, everything he did, it was facing death that people might know Jesus. Isn't it interesting? He faced death so people could know life. So 40 men, they gathered together and they have this plan to ambush him. But the commander, his name is Claudius Lysias, he finds out that they were going to be waiting for him. And so he takes it very seriously because he knew that this threat wasn't to just any Jew. He knew that Paul is a Roman citizen. He's about, he ain't been condemned yet. He ain't committed a crime according to him. So he's about to protect his own. And so he, he takes it so seriously. I want you to gather this. It says in verse 23, that then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 270 horsemen, and then 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight, provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, 
I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Acts 24 is the opening of what's referred to as Paul's trial. In Acts 23, he stands before the Sanhedrin, or some say the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish leaders, the Jewish elders, the, the high priest and the Pharisees and Sadducees. But in Acts 24 now, he's on trial with the Romans. And I want you to catch this, that since the Jews had missed their opportunity, they were planning, they were scheming, they were wanting to catch him, get in this ambush and kill him. And they tried it time and time again, and it fails every time. Since Acts 9, if you look at Acts 9, when he's Saul of Tarsus, he doesn't become what we know as the Apostle Paul till Acts 13. He's in Jerusalem after he's on his way to Damascus, I should say, first, encounters Jesus, goes to Damascus, starts preaching in Damascus, goes to Jerusalem, starts preaching in Jerusalem, and they, the Jews want to kill him then. It says that they, they actually, some of the Christians got him in a basket, and they snuck him out of Jerusalem. They've been trying to kill Paul since that moment of his conversion. Can you imagine the moment you give your life to Jesus and you're already out for death? Like you say yes to Jesus and people already want to kill you. This is, this is the Apostle Paul's life from Acts 9 to the very end. I think about this moment as he stands here, though. You have present a number of different important people. The ones that are gathered here to observe and be a part of it it is the Sanhedrin. They're, they're here recognizing that we haven't been able to kill him any other way, and so we're going to have to do it in a way, I guess, legally with the Romans to be able to find how we can finally stop him. But they didn't show up alone this time. The Bible makes it very clear because they failed in every other way. They're going to take a different approach. So they come to Caesarea, the Bible tells us, and... They specifically bring what you're going to need for any trial, a good lawyer. You're going to need somebody who's going to be able to plead your case, somebody who's going to know the law well. And I want to tell you this, it wasn't just any lawyer they show up with. See, we just renamed in the Bible without a lot of perspective, but you have to understand that this lawyer, lawyer Teratalis is his name. He's a very sophisticated, uh, he would be referred to as a good orator, meaning He's eloquent with his speech. He knows how to talk. He's not just any lawyer. He's a Roman lawyer, which means he knew like the back of his hand every single Roman law that was necessary for the Sanhedrin to be able to put Paul away. And so they show up here in this moment, just like any American trial. How does an American trial work? There's a couple uh, very simple pieces to it, right? Each side presents their case. A judge rules or a, verdict, or a verdict comes from the jury. And then finally, there is the sentencing. There is the justice being served. In Rome, it was exactly the same. In this case, the governor would act as the judge in the trial, and he would be the one to serve justice. What I need you to recognize for the Apostle Paul's life, and I don't know about you, but I want my life to resemble those that I see in the Bible that truly lived out the faith. Remember, in the end, he wrote before death, I have kept the faith. The prayer of my heart for you 
has not been, Lord, at any given moment, would there be somebody who is dangerous? It's been, Jesus, would you keep us dangerous? Let it not be said of you that you, you look back on your life so many years from now after X amount of divorces and, and kids with different people and living your life for yourself and you're an alcoholic or you're living in, the, in your mindset of the glory days. I remember when I used to play football or you're, you're so screwed up and you go, I remember when I used to go to church. Let it be said of you that when you are 30 and you are 40 and you are 50, you could say, I am keeping the faith. Let it be said of you that when you are near death, when you're in your 80s, 90s, whenever the Lord is going to take us each home, we do not know. Some of us, it could be this year for, for all we know. We don't know. But let it be said whenever that time is or until Jesus comes back, you can say, I've kept the faith. Jesus, keep us dangerous. So the Apostle Paul, as he comes before this moment, I think it's important to be said as we look at his life that just as Jesus stood on trial before Rome, Paul does also. If you're looking to follow the life of somebody, the Apostle Paul, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I mean, when he said that, let's, let's look at outside of a crucifixion that can save us of our sins. Only Jesus can do that. He came pretty close. As Jesus stood on trial before Rome, standing before Pilate, standing before Herod until his crucifixion, so also Paul stands on trial before Rome. As you take in kind of the, the guts of the gospel, the pieces of this trial, let me take you to verse 2. It says that when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. He starts off, he said, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound Gratitude. I want you to notice how Teratala starts. The dude is showing up to get a W. The guy has not arrived in this moment to lose. So how does he start? Like any good trained lawyer, he flatters the junk out of the judge. He starts by, by saying, most excellent, Felix. Which that, that, that statement right there is very important to even unlock who the writer of the book of Acts is because that phrase, most excellent, is used multiple times in the book of Luke and book of Acts, which is why we know Luke wrote this book. We see here, it said, he says, most excellent Felix, you brought peace, you brought reform, you've done all of these things. He's a brown-nosing, buttering up piece of trash. I'm not going to say all lawyers are. That's not what I'm saying. But I need you to understand that he knows exactly what he's doing as a Roman lawyer. He's done this before. He knows how to begin to stroke the ego of the governor, how to begin to pump the pride of the governor. He knows exactly how to start as he enters this moment. But what I need you to understand is do you actually think that Tertullus believes that this is a peaceful man? Because see, just because he, quote unquote, brought peace, many wars bring peace. But do you think he actually believes the things that he's saying? That this is a peaceful man? Because if you're gonna search history, do you know who Governor Felix is? He's a savage. He's a barbarian. 
His efforts, if you look, and to the point that he's finally removed as governor, are as inhumane as they can possibly come. So we know by that fact alone that here, Tertullus has showed up to stroke the ego and almost serve up Paul as a sheep to the wolf. And I love how Paul addresses this. He writes this to the Romans. In chapter 16, verse 18, he addresses this idea of what Tertullus is doing. What is he doing? He's manipulating the moment. What is he doing specifically that Paul addresses? Paul says in verse 18 that by their smooth speech, these are people of division. These are people that, that come and they have divisive efforts. By their smooth speech, what kind of speech? And flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unexpected. The smooth talkers, the brown nosers, the people that know what they need to say to get what they want. This is Tertullus. This is the lawyer for the Sanhedrin that's showing up in Acts 24 at this trial to bury the Apostle Paul. Here he stands alone. And his effort is really twofold. He starts off by wanting to flatter and, and, and wanting to manipulate. Essentially, what he came to do with the Sanhedrin when they, when they showed up here in Caesarea is they had a plan to take the justice system, as many try to do even today, and manipulate the justice system. To take good laws, to take things that are in effect, in effect for protection and, and to provide and and to take them and manipulate them for their own gain. To flatter. To start off by getting you feeling good so I can finally then, it's the same thing we, some of y'all do still now. It's the same thing you do when you're a kid. I, I watch my kids do it with us. <laughs> my son Z is so funny. I like your hair, Dad. Walk up to Sid. I like, your, I like your pants, Mom. I would say he probably has a little more innocence, which is nice. He actually believes what he's saying. It's, it's nice. But isn't there this possibility of a manipulative spirit inside of every single one of us, even today? Let me say it again. Every single one of us. That if not checked at the gates of our heart with the Holy Spirit, Every single one of us, we know exactly how since birth out of the womb, we were born to manipulate. Why? Because we were born into sin. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in need of his grace. But maybe some of you don't even know this and you need to right now check your heart. What manipulative, divisive, flattering spirit is right now trying to control you and decide some of the outcome of your life. That some of the things that you get is not because it's what God had for you, but it's because you knew how to get it. You know who to say it to. You know how to say it. You know what to say. And I'll tell you, you can get what you want now, and you will pay the consequences later. Or you will yield yourself to the will of God and the Holy Spirit. 
you will get what he wants for you, and you'll be blessed later. What looks like a small, nothing mustard seed now grows to be something very big and beautiful later. But many of us are too impatient, and we want the big thing now, yet we're not ready for it, so it destroys over time rather than grows over time. How many of us are dealing with this manipulative spirit, specifically even in flattery? But it wasn't just one-fold. It was two-fold here. Teratalis knew how to approach not only with flattery and manipulate the system in that way, but he also approaches Paul with false accusation. See, he wasn't just manipulating Felix. He was going to manipulate the facts. He wasn't just going to get inside the mind and the heart and the emotions of Felix. He wanted to get in the nitty-gritty and the roots of the facts of what actually happened, what didn't happen, how it happened, and he wanted to begin to manipulate that. So Teratalus continues in Acts 24, verse 4. He says, but in order not to weary you further, he's, he's like, hey, listen, I pumped you, you up enough here. I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. And I want you to catch how the devil works here. Because see, Teratalus, he's a puppet of the devil right now. These aren't some good dudes. They might look the part, but the apostle Paul said, listen, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That's a reference of what Jesus made saying you look the part on the outside, but on the inside, it's only a dead corpse. A whitewashed wall was referring to a tomb. See, the hand of the devil is on this right now. And see, we can tell this very simply because this is how the snake was, the, the devil was even at the beginning in the garden, tempting Adam and Eve. It would take the facts, but it would just tweak them a little bit. So what he did is he took the occurrences and the moments where Paul was actually in places, actually in moments. There's so much that is not written down. You think this trial was just as long as Acts 23, 24, 25, and 26 that we're about to go on a journey? So much happening. And he began to just slowly manipulate the facts and twist them a little bit and take where Paul was and what, what could have happened and twist into this is how it happened. What does he say? He said, that you stirred up riots. Well, hey, if you've gone on the journey with me this year, and if you've either watched them or you've been in-house, Paul never one time stirred up a riot. Other people stirred up riots because of what Paul said. They didn't like what he said, so they made the crowd and they made the city go ballistic. Paul never stirred up a riot. Well, I was trying to accuse him of, you know, charging him that he committed crimes against the Roman government. Well, the commander, we, we just referenced a little bit ago, Claudius Lysias, that took him under custody, arrested him. And, and if, you watch, if you watch this extension called Another Citizenship on Acts 22, you'll see this moment when he's stretched out and he's about to beat him and he realizes he's a Roman citizen. And then he recognizes, listen, if I go through the facts, this guy has never actually committed a crime. There's a not, not enough to prove him guilty. So what did Teratalus begin to do? He tried to begin to take something that where moments he was in or could have happened and tweak it and twist it and manipulate it with what's called a false accusation in Scripture, and we see this happen today, to prove it to be the truth 
he wanted it to be. We know this in the year 2023. It was his truth. People always forget to put the in front of it because there isn't a or his or her or my or yours. There is the truth. And so he began to tweak it in such a way that he could get the result that he's looking for. Listen, there's a lot more accusations. I'm going to touch on them in, in an extension. But here he starts throwing them out. The bottom line is this. If you look at any trial, if you've ever watched any TV show, or I've actually, I've, I've been in court moments enough, I'll tell you, you squeeze your butt cheeks real tight. When that judge walks in, you're sitting there just like, man, this is for real. It's like, you better have your phone silence, all that stuff. Like, you're sitting there, and I've been in some real enough moments. You'll find, though, that it's very simple. A trial is very simple. Like, any hearing or court case is very simple. You must have unreasonable doubt. You must have the facts, the evidence, the truth, the proof to put somebody away or to prove them guilty or to finish the case. You have to prove the case. So this is why Paul states later, I'm going to jump ahead to verse 20. He's referencing the Sanhedrin. He goes, listen, these who are here, they, they should state what crime they found when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Men are, listen, when I was in Jerusalem, they should have then said and proved that I actually could, did this or that. But they had no proof, he's saying. I was in Jerusalem, they couldn't prove anything. Now I'm in Caesarea, you guys aren't proving anything. You have no actual proof to put me away. You have no actual proof to put me to death. You have no actual proof to condemn me. And he continues then, unless it was this, and he's like kind of recalling Unless it was this one thing I shouted, as I stood in their presence, there was this one thing I shouted, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. He's like, listen, only one thing could have set these guys off when I talked about the resurrection. Do you know why? Because everything in this life comes down to the resurrection. If the resurrection actually happened, that means that one day, when Jesus comes back and he cracks through the clouds, the Bible says we'll meet the Lord in the air. You know what it says? We'll become like him. What does that mean? A resurrected body, a different kind of body, a 2.0 better kind of body. If the resurrection actually happened, oh, that means hell is for real. If the resurrection actually happened, that means Jesus can forgive you and you don't have to go there. If the resurrection actually happened, that means you can't live your life for yourself how you want to live it. If the resurrection is true, then I need you to understand very simply that everything you say, everything you do, everywhere you go, everything you wear, all the people you hang out with, every hour of every day is based on one thing, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. Not just that resurrection of the dead is possible, but specifically that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one prophesied about, the Messiah that came, that he himself raised from the dead. So then if he, a spotless lamb, a reference to the Old Testament, meaning one without sin, he would go to the cross to die for us, to love us that much. See, the cross was love. The resurrection was power. When you mix the combination of those two, a unfailing, consistent, never walk out on you kind of love, which many of you have never even tasted or known, and so you go around trying to taste it in every other way you can think to, See, when you taste 
a, a love that paid in blood and then a power that can literally set free somebody, raise a dead man up, it's a game changer. So Paul's like, the only thing I can think is this one thing I said. I talked about the resurrection. But other than that, you can't prove anything. He's saying you have zero evidence, you have zero proof. And so what I find interesting with Tertullus is instead of coming with cold, hard facts to try to put Paul away, he spent all of his time pumping the pride of Felix. Rather than coming with actual proof, he leaned into the pride of Felix, he manipulates the system, and then you know what he actually does? And this is what lawyers do. Bluff. He bluffs. He knows he has nothing, so he starts with flattery, and he starts with this, this pomp and circumstance and this big moment. He knows he doesn't have enough, and so what does he say? He says in verse 8 to Felix, he says, By examining him yourself, he's pumping his pride again. Listen, you know, you got it, Felix. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, Felix, once you hear Paul talk, it's simple. This is a simple case. Once you hear Paul talk, he's going to shoot himself in the foot. You're going to see he's definitely guilty. This is this simple, and we're all just going to walk out of here. And then the Bible says that the other Jews joined in on what? The accusation. It doesn't say on the facts. It says the accusation asserting that these things were true. Why was Paul falsely accused? Very simple. You want to know why? Just as Jesus was falsely accused, so was Paul. I'll make it very simple for you, which means if you're going to live for Jesus, then you will be falsely accused as well. People will make up lies about you and stories, and they will concoct whatever they can because they are trying to find anything possible to ruin your reputation, because to them that means it ruins the reputation of who you represent. They're trying to find something one day in your marriage. They want to find something with your children. They want to find something with your social media. The world loves it. The world loves it when another pastor slides into some DMs. The world loves it when, when great leaders in the faith are spoken, even, even, if it's, even if it's fake. You know what's tough today? How do we know it's true anymore? So many people are making up so many things, falsely accusing so many people. How do you know anymore? I mean, on any given week, I can find something about someone, meaning someone in the faith. I can find something about they did this or they had to step down or this is said. How do we know anymore? Now, again, some of it is very true, but we were just having a discussion. I won't get into it, but somebody who after they passed away, they begin to be, they begin to be accused. Now it's all coming back around that these were lies and this was not the truth, that this person wasn't living this conduct, that this actually didn't happen. And do you know why false accusations are so harmful? And I think this is just so important for you, need to, for you to understand as a young person. Because I've had plenty about me. And what you can do is you could hear something say about me, and then you could quickly go, oh my gosh, I can't believe we want to follow what Scripture says about false accusations. I don't got time to teach that right now. But if you want to know more, I'll tell you about it. But don't listen so quickly to what people say. Watch the character of a person. 
Watch the circle that that person has around them. You're only as strong as the people that you place around you. Because the reality is they shouldn't even get to you because people don't let them, because they love you so much, they're going to keep you accountable. They're going to close you in. They're going to speak in your life. They're going to protect you. When people are saying things, they're going to deal with it. That's, that's a real brother or sister in Christ. But I want you to understand why false accusations are so harmful. Wherever there is a false accusation, I want you to look around because the devil is close by. Where there are false accusations, it is the fingerprints of Satan himself. You want to know why? Because it says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, for the accuser, it's a name. It's not a description. It's the name of the devil. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. Where? And he was Lucifer in heaven, and he was cast out because of his pride. The one who accuses them, who? Us. Before our God, day and night. The Bible says very simply here that Satan is the accuser of us. He lives his life to accuse us. He spends all of his time wanting to accuse us. So where there is false accusation and you start hearing made up thoughts or rumors or lies or something posted, you should stop for a second and look around because the Holy Spirit isn't in that moment. Satan is. So before you jump to conclusions or for, before you just make assumptions, the best thing you can do is go face to face and say, to that person. Is this true? Oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't know the Bible. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's what it says. Not go around their back and tell other people, did you hear what happened? Can you believe this? I, I can't even believe it. It says to go face to face with that person. Is this true? That's how you deal with a false accusation. Do you know what happens when you do that? Satan just runs out of the room with his tail between his legs. The power and the presence of God fills the moment. The Holy Spirit dwells in unity among brothers and sisters. And there is no more power. There is no more victory. Teratalis has to shut up. And in steps then in the room, Jesus, who deals with that accuser. But too often we get swept up. Come on, let's keep being honest. Because when we hear something, we're like, oh, I can't believe that. <gasps> Juicy. Rather than stopping and saying, hey, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait and I'm going to see exactly. We'll see. I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to say anything yet. I, I won't see that person until Wednesday. I'm going to wait till I can see them and talk to them in person because I don't have their phone number. Or right, well, I'm going to call that person right now. We ain't going to live in that lane right now. What, what do you mean? I mean, I could totally see Pastor Dave doing something like that. I mean, you see when he preaches, he gets intense. I could totally see that. Yeah, see, if, if, if I participate in this with you right now, that we're both taking hands with the devil and we're, we're, walking, we're, we're walking down accusa accusation avenue right now. And, and so, yeah, I can't, I can't, do that because I've never seen his character ever to be that. And so I'm going to talk to him. And actually, you should too, since you're going around and sharing rumors, and you should actually shut up, by the way. 
y'all chumps, you're so weak. Because what I just said is what the Bible says to do. You say, shut your mouth and stop spreading a rumor that isn't true until you go and talk to them. The only thing that I can think that's worse than, than participating in this is that we decide to say nothing and let them go keep spreading it. This is this moment. I'm trying to help you understand. He's standing there in the midst of accusation after accusation after accusation, just taking it just like Jesus did. That's what I'm telling you. If it happened to Jesus, it happened to Paul, it will happen to you. If you're going to keep the faith. You see, unlike the Sanhedrin showing up with Tertullus, Paul didn't have a lawyer. He came by himself in this moment. In the world of law, it'd be referred to as he represented himself, they would say. But did he? Did he represent himself? Is that what happened? Or did he write in Romans 8? And he talked about how Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and he intercedes on behalf of us. So was he there alone representing himself? Or was there somebody else that was interceding and representing him? See, too many times we, 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 we get in this moment and we feel like we're surrounded and we can't take in the big picture. You are never alone. You have a great high, high priest. His name is Jesus. And listen, it might not look like it in the earthly sense, but he's going before a greater judge than Felix. I can promise you that. And where the devil is accusing you of every single thing that you have done and you know that you can't even deny the fact that you have, or you're being falsely accused of things that you never did, Jesus stands there as your representation. He stands there, and the Bible says that he begins to intercede on our behalf, that he begins to be in that moment where you know you are not representing yourself. You are not alone. He stands with you. So Paul kind of rises up in this moment. He's like, I'm, I'm going I'm to speak now. Teratala's done his work. I'm going to speak. Verse 10. And when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. He's not saying this to flatter him. He's stating facts. He's being direct. You know what he's saying? Listen, there's no way that you can get this wrong. You've been around a long time. You've seen a lot. You've listened to this. They got nothing. I'm going to tell you the facts now. He says, so you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges that they are making now against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Paul's making his case stronger. He's saying, listen, listen, if, they, if they're trying to say I don't believe in the, in the law, I do. I don't believe in the prophets, I do. Jesus came to make sure that he fulfilled both of them. They're trying to say that I, I went and caused some uproar in the temple or whatever. No, I didn't. 
I went and just took a Nazarite vow. I was getting ready to get my head shaved with four dudes. I was getting ready to come so I can minister to the people here in Jerusalem. And I love this thought. He says, I have the same hope in God as these men. The difference is I understand the fullness of that hope. You don't unlock the fullness of hope until you can unlock the reality of the resurrection. Because if Jesus can't raise a dead man, then what hope is there in this life? That simply we will live and we will die? That, that is worthless. That is not anything worth living for. That, oh, oh, I just live my life how I want and then it's done. Or is that I can live my life in a righteous way to honor the Lord because the reality of the resurrection is true. Paul just said it, that we both the righteous and the wicked, both those that live for the Lord and don't, we will all one day be resurrected and then we will be judged. He talks about that in other writings. He's saying, Felix, this is, this is simple here. But he ends with something very important, very powerful. He said, so I strive to keep my conscience clear, both before God and even these men. What, what is he saying here? He's saying, I strive to be a man of a clear conscience, a woman for you as a clear, of a clear conscience and of good character, he's saying. An integrity that it matters. Your decisions, your actions, they matter. Walking in purity, it actually matters. It makes or breaks your walk with God. Purity has a powerful handle. That's why he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, man, honor God with your body. Because it makes or breaks. I don't know, he, maybe he talked about being honest in that moment. Honesty matters. Not having a lying tongue, it, it actually really does matter. Being a person of compassion, that you don't just so quickly walk by people in need, but you're a person of character, and with a clear conscience, you won't walk by anybody and then later be like, oh, I shouldn't have walked by that person. But you, in that moment, have the character to stop, so later you have the conscience to be thankful for that character. You understand? A clear conscience is derived from a good character. And we live in a world today where good character and integrity does not matter. Because it's more about how you appear to people than who you actually are. It's more about how people could begin to see you, what they could perceive, rather than who you actually are on the inside. How do you have a clear conscience? I found that you, you pray about it. You pray and you say, Lord, would you forgive me of this thing that I just did? Because it's weighing on you and it's not clear, it's heavy. It's heavy and it's dark and it's, it's opaque. The, the transparency of a walk with Jesus comes first with, Lord, I repent for giving my sins. And then I go, Lord, I know I, I caught this one and I was thinking about this but would you search me and see if there's any other offensive way in me that I missed? See, many of us were willing to approach what we do know, but what about all that lingers inside of you that you're not even aware of that the Holy Spirit has to tell you about? So you begin to say, Lord, would you search the hidden places? Would you reveal the hidden things inside of me? The things I don't even know to bring up. Would you bring those things to my attention so I can give you those things? Because then truly... I can have a clear conscience. I'd also say for many of you, it comes down to a point where you can go, Lord, I want to have a clear conscience. So would you give me eyes to see myself 
the way you see me. Because I see myself as a sinner still. I see myself as a screw-up still. I see myself as falling short all the time. So Lord, as now as I've asked for your forgiveness and I've asked you to search me and, and truly my conscience is clear, would you now give me eyes to see that I am blameless in your sight? I'm righteous because of you, Jesus. I'm holy because of you, Jesus. I truly am forgiven. I don't need to walk around with this complex like, will God forgive me? Does God love me? God has forgiven me. God has loved me. God can use me for his glory. That's how you work on a clear conscience. Clear conscience is not a sinless life. Clear conscience comes from a repentive life. The apostle Paul, he stood before all of these men. Think about this. He stands here in this moment with all of them on trial literally for his life. And he says, I have a clear conscience, yet he was a murderer. How? Because it wasn't based upon the wrong that he had done. It was based upon the right that Jesus had done. And he fully steps into this moment with these men, saying, I can truly stand here before all of you with a clear conscience and declare that I'm spotless and I'm forgiven and God has renewed me. God has repaired things inside of me. God has put together the pieces of this broken vessel and filled me with his presence and his glory. And so when I stand here and I say, I have a clear conscience, I can say it with a whole heart knowing that I've lived in repentance. Not only I will up until now, but I'm going to continue to. If you think there's a moment that we stop repenting, then you're misunderstanding what it looks like to keep the faith. The way you keep the faith, the way you stay dangerous for the Lord, is you stay repentive before the Lord. So the Apostle Paul comes to this moment, and after he states all of this, it says in verse 22, Then Felix who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Silas, when Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. And he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to keep, give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Here's what I want you to find interesting about this case. Think about the way this trial started. Tertullus comes out and he just begins firing with flattery, with manipulation, tweaking the facts, twisting the truth. Check this. Isn't it interesting that the flattery and the manipulation and even the lies of Tertullus trying to reorient the thoughts and the feelings of Felix didn't work? But it's the clear conscience the good character of Paul. That's what moved Felix. Continue to read the scriptures. You know what it says? It says that for two years, Paul was kept there. For two years, Felix was so moved by Paul's life that he continued to invite him back for two years, all the time, two years doesn't say whether it's daily or weekly or how often it was, but continuously for two years. Why? Because he was so moved by his clear conscience and his good character that people want to hear from someone like that. See, 
Social media in this culture has taught you that you must be impressive. You must have a wow factor. You must have something that grips to become viral. But the, the reality is you are viral in one moment and not in the next. And people are looking at you in one moment and they don't care about you in the next. But those that will truly care and watch your life is if it stays with a clear conscience and good character, not in these years. But what you're building in these years, it's over time they want to watch you. It was 10 years after high school that I had somebody come back and say, I've been watching your life for 10 years, and the person that you said you were and you would become is exactly who I see you are now. Up in this loft right here. Next, next question. He says, will you lead me to Jesus? Do you know what, where that comes from? A clear conscience and a good character. And man, I made a lot of mistakes over those 10 years. And I'm thinking, how God, how could you use me when I made this many mistakes over 10 years? People would see that even in my mistakes, I would repent of them. People weren't seeing perfection in my life. They were seeing a hunger and a love for Jesus that just kept going forward. And when I would mess up, like Paul, God's gonna strike you, you whitewashed wall. I'd take a step back, I'd repent, I'd reassess, I keep going forward. So here it all comes down to this ending of chapter 24. Felix keeps calling him back. What did they talk about? It says in verse 25 that as Paul talked about righteousness, I mean, he's going for it now. He's teaching Felix on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. He's like, listen, you think that this is judgment? There is a day of judgment to come, Felix, like you can't imagine. Felix shook. The Bible says here, Felix was afraid. There is power and there is fear in the truth of God's word that only Jesus can set us free in. And he said, listen, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. And at that time, you know what he's hoping for? He was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Why, when he was so moved by Paul, why did he want to bribe? Because he thought, this guy is too good to be true. And if he can take a bribe, I'll know that this whole Jesus thing, I'll know that everything that Paul represents, I'll know it's all just, a, just, just fake. It's completely false. I think in some sense, as Christians, we can appear too good to be true. Because we have a God that is both good and true. And it's, it's no longer Christ, Paul said, that lives in, no, it's no longer I that live, but he said, Christ that lives in me. So yeah, I think at times, Christianity could look like it's too good to be true, but it's not. It is good and it's true because that is who our Savior is. So Felix keeps offering him a bribe. He keeps bringing them back for two years like there's no way that this guy's for real. There's no way. Do you know what Felix didn't recognize? Is that for two years, he kept opening his door for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be preached. He kept opening his door for his heart to be changed. He kept opening the door for him to come and hear a message that truly sets you free. You know, young person, leader, any pastor, myself included, I think something that we don't talk enough about is the power of a clear conscience and good character. And what I want you to understand is that, that the reality is this. The world can flatter. The world can slander. The world can lie and the world can falsely accuse. 
But there is nothing that will replace just some good old-fashioned righteousness, holiness, a clear conscience, a good character, faith. You can't replace those things. You know why? Because those things have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Can I help you understand something? You can lawyer your way through with some flattery. You can lawyer your way through with some lies and false accusations. You can't lawyer your way to receive righteousness or holiness or a clear conscience or forgiveness. That can't be bought. That can't be earned. That can only be given as a free gift through what Jesus paid on the price, the price he paid on the cross. But I just think I need every single one of us to continually realize because we don't want to become like the Sanhedrin. We don't want to become overly religious. We don't want to ever start thinking that we're better than people. We don't want to ever start thinking that there's something special about us. It's the blood of Jesus that paid the price for us. We don't want to become fake like Teratalis going and, and, and making stuff up and, and, and falsely accusing or flattering and manipulating. We don't want to be that. So this is what we recognize. We recognize that we are not innocent, but we are also not guilty. We recognize that there is not a single one of us that have not fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a single one of us that have been perfect. We are not innocent. But praise be to God. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you might not be innocent. But you're not guilty if he paid the price for your sin. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. If there's just one person here that you need to give your life to Jesus for the first time, or you need to rededicate your life to Jesus, your heart, your soul, your mind full of thoughts, your hands or feet that have gone places, done things you wish they hadn't, your mouth that's spoken things that you wish they hadn't. I just tell you what Jesus has told you. There is no condemnation. Jesus said, I do not condemn you. The apostle Paul then reiterates it later. He says, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And I just want to invite you right now to make Jesus Lord of your life. Because I need you to recognize that every single one of us, at some point, we're going to stand on trial. If not in this life, I promise you in the next. And I don't know about you, but I want someone that's seated at the right hand of the Father. I need someone who knows how to represent me well. I need someone that knows how to intercede on my behalf. I need somebody that knows how to stand in the way of God's wrath and my sin with the grace and love and forgiveness that I need to go forward in this life. I don't know about you, but I need Jesus. And so if you're here, either you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus or you have wandered and you strayed away, I just want you to get off your feet and meet me down here up front right here and just come and make Jesus Lord of your life thank you 
I just believe and pray for open hearts tonight. Repentive hearts tonight. God, I pray that we'd always be a ministry that cares so much more about what you think than what one another thinks. That we'd be a ministry that knows how to humble ourselves, repent, and take a small step back so we can take some large steps forward. I thank you just for every young person here tonight. I thank you for the calling on their life. Thank you for the plan that you have for them. And I just thank you that, Lord, they are forgiven, that they are redeemed, and that, God, your plan for them is great. So, Lord, I'm just going to pray over right now the three that have responded. And just as I pray, each of you, just in your own words, I want you to... I want you to right now just talk to the Lord. Tell him where you're at. Tell him who he is. Tell him what you need. But Lord, I just right now, I just feel a sense that you're calling these three right now to something deeper beyond where they've been. It's not just a forgiveness of their sins. It's not just Jesus, forgive me. It's bigger. It's Jesus, use me. Jesus, I pray that you would take them right out of wherever they are right now. Whatever Lord wants them to feel bad or feel guilty or feel condemned. I just ask that, Lord, they'd feel just that stuff fall off of them right now in the name of Jesus. They'd feel a freedom in a way that, Lord, they're not going to let the devil speak any false accusations or lies on their life from this moment forward about these things. He might come from a different angle, but it ain't going to be about these things anymore. We just speak the truth of God's word right now, that, Lord, you're going to place a hunger inside of them. I pray that you would, you would replace guilt right now with that hunger and that desperation for Jesus, that you'd replace any of Lord, Lord, like that pit in their stomach where they know they've gone off track in any way, that you'd replace that now with a desperation, a hunger for more of Jesus. I pray that, Lord, their life would be defined by this moment, that they love you too much to stay where they are in that seat, that they had to step out, they need more of you. And I thank you that tonight they are not innocent, but even greater. Thank you for the blood that you shed on the cross, that they are not guilty. And so we just come to you, Lord, with an open confession, a very easy one. We plead tonight, not guilty, not because we're innocent, not because we've done everything right, not because we haven't strayed away, but we plead tonight that we are not guilty because it's the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross for our sins. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit that's been given to us that we might live the life that you've called us to live. So we do that tonight. And we gather together in this moment, Lord, to worship you and to seek your face and to come in this moment with gratitude and praise to honor you because you're worthy. Lord, we are not innocent. Somebody say that. I am not innocent, but I am not guilty. Say, I'm not innocent, but I am not guilty. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, stand across this place. Let's begin to seek his face. Father, we worship you. We seek you. We honor you and we glorify you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.